You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. This is our fifth lecture on logic for the International Catholic University. And the subject of today's lecture is analogy and the statement. We've finished our discussion of Aristotle's categories. And so in this lesson, we're going to move on to his treatise on interpretation, which covers the logic of the second operation. That logic focuses on the statement. The statement is the fundamental logical tool for grasping the true and the false. Before we leave the logic of the first operation behind, however, I'd like to cover a topic which belongs to that part of logic, but is only hinted at by Aristotle in the categories. The topic of analogy. Now, let's go back and take a second look at the beginning of Aristotle's categories, where he distinguishes between univocal and equivocal uses of a word. A word is used univocally when it's used at least twice, but has the same meaning in both cases. For example, a man and a cow are both called animals, the word animal, though used twice, has the same meaning, sensitive, living thing. The word animal, therefore, is being used univocally. Now, a word is used equivocally when it's used at least twice, but has two different meanings. Let's look closely, however, at the example that Aristotle uses. Thus, he says, a real man and a figure in a picture can both lay claim to the name animal yet they are equivocally so named. For though they have a common name, the definition corresponding with the name differs for each. Notice that in this example, the definition of animal, which we apply to the picture and to the man, while not exactly the same, is not entirely different. The man is a sensitive living thing, and the picture of the man is a picture of a sensitive living thing. In the example Aristotle gives, the meanings are not entirely the same, but they're not entirely different. But that doesn't have to be the case. Sometimes words used equivocally have meanings that are entirely different. A flying mammal and a club used to hit a baseball are both called bats. They're called bats equivocally because the term bat is used twice and has two different meanings. Yet the meanings have no relation to each other. So we could say this, sometimes words used equivocally have meanings that are different but related. Other times they have meanings that are different and entirely unrelated. Now, St. Thomas uses this distinction to give us two species of equivocal names. He writes, And this way of being common is a middle between 
pure equivocation, and simple univocity. For in those things which are named analogously, there is neither one meaning as there is with univocals, nor totally diverse meanings as in equivocals. What St. Thomas is pointing to here is analogy. When the word used twice has two entirely different meanings, he calls that pure equivocation. But when a word is used analogously, the meaning is neither the same, nor is it entirely different. It's partly the same, partly different. The picture of a man is called an animal, not with the same meaning as when we say the man himself is an animal, but not with an entirely different meaning, but a meaning that's partially the same and partially different. The picture of an animal is not a sensitive living thing, but a picture of a sensitive living thing. That's the first qualification of the analogous use of a word. The second qualification of the analogous use of the word is that words used analogously are used according to a certain order. There is a priority and posteriority, a before and after, in the meanings of the terms. St. Thomas writes, In all names which are said analogously of many things, all must be said with respect to one. Therefore, it is necessary that it, that is the one, be put in the definition of all. And since the meaning which the name signifies is the definition, it is necessary that the name be attributed in the first place to that which is put into the definition of the others, and secondarily of the others, in the order in which they are closer to or farther from the first thing. St. Thomas is saying that when the same word is used analogously, and therefore has many different but related meanings, there's always some meaning that's first, and the other meanings fall into an order, a series, which is determined by how closely they're related to the first meaning. Now, a good example of this is the word medical. We talk about medical doctors, medical students, and medical supplies. If we were to define the term medical in each place, in each instance, it would have a different definition each time, but they would all point back to the first use of the term, the use when we call the doctor medical. Thus, the meaning of medical, which is attributed to the medical doctor, is the original use, and the others are extended analogous uses of the term. Furthermore, we can say that some of the uses are closer to the original than others. If we were to define what the medical student is, it would be much like what the medical doctor is, but if we define medical supplies, that's further away from what we mean by medical when we talk about the student being medical. There's an order among the meanings of the term that is used analogously. So, two qualifications for the analogous use of a term. One, 
term is used twice, but it has partly different and partly the same meanings. Secondly, though the meanings are different, there's an order of prior and posterior, before and after between them. And of course, if we're going to define what kind of order it is, we could say it's the order of knowledge. We name things as we know them. And this leads to an important point. Someone might ask the question, why use analogy at all? Why use analogous names at all? Isn't that just a source of confusion? Some modern logicians don't see any purpose to analogy, and they want to eliminate it. All equivocation, they argue, is an invitation to confusing, mixing up separate things. The ideal language, they say, would assign a different word or symbol for each different meaning. The presence of analogy in our language, they say, is a sign of its imperfection, an accident of its irrational origins. Aristotle and St. Thomas would disagree. They would answer that the order of meanings in the analogous names points to a purpose for analogy. That order is the order of knowledge, because we name things as we know them. And so that order of analogy indicates the order in which we must come to know things. We could approach the question from another angle. Some things are very familiar to us. Other things are very obscure. Oftentimes, however, there's a likeness between what's obscure and what's familiar, what we don't know and what we know. And so someone who wants to teach us the obscure thing, teach us about the obscure thing, wants to use the likeness that the obscure thing has with the familiar thing to draw us to knowledge of the obscure thing. And that's exactly what the analogous word does. The analogous word, the analogous name, allows us to be drawn from our knowledge of something familiar to a knowledge of what something is that is very obscure. We can make this clear with an example. What physical seeing is, is clear to everybody. We know what we mean when we say, I see a color. What understanding is, is harder to figure out. It's less familiar, it's more obscure to us. But what we can do is we can take the likeness that there is between physical seeing and understanding and use that likeness to come to a better appreciation of what understanding is. How do we do that? What tool do we use? The analogous word. Because we say not only about colors, that I see the color red, for example, but we also say when someone says something to us, I see what you mean. Of course, we do not mean that we physically see what they're saying, what they're saying is only audible. I can only hear it. When we say, I see what you mean, what we're referring to is that we understand what the person means. 
That is, we're taking the likeness between physical seeing and understanding and using it to illuminate the more obscure process of intellectual understanding. Now, besides the fact that we can often use analogy to take us from understanding the more familiar to understanding the more obscure, we can also use, and in fact must use, analogy in theology. When something is entirely outside of our ordinary experience, the only way we can give it a name is by analogy. Since the first meaning of every term comes from our ordinary experience. Now, since God is outside of all of our ordinary experience, then the only way we can assign names, assign attributes to God, is through a process of analogy. When we say that God is wise, we give to that word wise a meaning derived from, but secondary to, the meaning which the word has when we say Aristotle is wise. And this is true about every name of God. Every name of God is analogous. And without analogous naming, theology would be impossible. Now, how analogous naming works exactly in theology is something you need to study in a theology class. So that's all we're going to say about analogy. We've understood enough about analogy, however, both to see basically what it is and to see its usefulness. And our study of analogy brings to an end our consideration of the logic of the first operation of the intellect. And so at this point, we're going to make the big transition from the first operation to the logic of the second operation. Now, we said before, the second operation of the intellect was a composing and dividing which aimed at understanding the true and the false. And the fundamental tool that we use in order to do this composing and dividing well is called the statement. So, just as the first part of logic was primarily about the definition, the second part of logic is primarily about the statement. What we're going to do today is we're going to talk about the statement, its definition, its parts. In the next lecture, we're going to talk about the kinds of statements and the relationships between those kinds. Now, Aristotle talks about the statement in the second book of the Organon, which is entitled On Interpretation, or in Greek, Perihermeneus. Now, before we get into the details of this book, I'd like to explain its title. It's very important. Hermeneus comes from the Latin for the Greek god Hermes, the messenger god. The implication is this. The statement, the logical tool, which is the subject of the perihermeneus, is the interpreter, the messenger, the go-between. Now, what is a go-between? It goes between one human mind and another. I use a statement to reveal what I'm thinking to another person. 
Thus, the book about the statement is the book about the interpreter. This might seem a puzzling assertion, since every word, in a way, is a messenger from one mind to another. But I think Aristotle's thinking that the statement is the interpreter par excellence, because it's only when I make a statement that I fully reveal my mind to another person. If I merely say the word man, you know what I mean, you know what the term means, and you presume that I also do. But you'd remain puzzled. Why'd I say the word? My communication would be incomplete because you would not know what I think about man. If I then said man has a fallen nature, whether you agreed or not with my statement, you would feel satisfied to this extent. My communication was complete. You knew what I was thinking. Since only the statement does this, the statement is the perfect interpreter of one mind to another. So, since the statement is kind of the first perfect interpreter, the first complete speech, Aristotle uses this opportunity, the beginning of the perihermeneus, to take up the relation of speech, thought, and reality. He writes, Sounds are symbols of impressions in the soul, and written words are symbols of sounds. Just as not all men have the same writing, so not all men have the same speech. But the impressions of the soul, of which these are the first signs, are the same for all, as are the things which they are as the likenesses of. Now I want to reverse the order in which Aristotle does it, because I think it makes it clearer. Fido, the dog, is a dog. He's just Fido the dog. And it makes no difference whether you see him or I see him. He's just Fido the dog. In other words, Fido the dog is a reality, and he's common to both of us. Now, when we both see the dog, we have the same basic mental impression, because the mental impression, the idea, comes from the dog. I get my idea of Fido from Fido. If Fido is the same to you and to me, then our impressions of Fido are the same. But the words we use to express those impressions can be different for different men in different languages. So for example, I call Fido a dog. Cicero calls Fido Canus. And since the written word is the sign of the spoken word, then Cicero and I would also write different words for dog as well as say different words. So, you could sum it up this way. Reality is common. The impressions come from reality. They're common. The words to signify the impressions are chosen by men, and therefore they're different for different groups of men. They signify the ideas, the impressions, by convention. Now, after Aristotle has clarified this relationship between reality, things, and words, he talks about the difference between the first and second operations of the human intellect. He writes, as there are in the mind thoughts which do not involve truth or falsity, 
and also those which must be either true or false, so it is in speech. Man and white, as isolated terms, are not yet either true or false. Now Aristotle is first pointing to the obvious fact that we do not assign truth or falsity to simple expressions like man. In fact, we don't even assign truth or falsity directly to definitions such as rational animal. We only assign truth and falsity when such terms are combined in statements. For example, man is a rational animal. So Aristotle concludes, truth and falsity imply composition and division. Now, since truth and falsity imply composition and division and are expressed in a statement, a statement is always going to be complex. And since it's always complex, the first thing we need to talk about are the parts of the statement. Now, the parts of the statement are simple expressions. And as we saw before, words signify ideas by convention. Therefore, the simple expressions, which are parts of the statement, signify by convention. So Aristotle concludes, a sound significant by convention, of which no part is significant apart from the rest, is a simple expression. And referring back to what we said at the beginning of the categories, the term man, or the term runs, is a simple expression. The term the man runs is a statement. An expression, he says, is simple when no part of it signifies apart from the rest, at least not in such a way that it contributes to the meaning of the whole term. For example, the word dog has parts to it, the duh and the og, but neither the duh nor the og signify by anything by themselves. Dog, however, does signify something by itself, so dog is a simple expression. Now, this is true even if by accident sometimes what we break a simple expression into does have a kind of separate meaning. So the word stable has table as part of it. And now table does have a separate meaning, but not a separate meaning that contributes to the meaning of the word stable. Stable means one thing. Table just happens to be a part of that word, but it does not contribute to its meaning. So stable is still a simple expression. Every statement is going to be made of simple expressions, but they're going to be different kinds of simple expressions, different parts to the statement. They're called the noun and the verb. And the difference between the noun and the verb is that the noun signifies something without signifying a time for it, while the verb signifies something and implies a time for it. In grammatical terms, nouns do not have tenses. Verbs have tenses, past, present, and future. For example, in the statement, the man runs, man is the noun and runs is the verb. Running is attributed to man, and since what is attributed to a thing affects how a thing is, then we look at running as something that happens to the man. But what happens to him implies the notion of change. 
And change always requires a time. So when we say the man runs, the man is running, we ask, what time? Is he running now? Did he run before? Will he run later? We ask for past, present, or future tense. The verb always implies a time because the verb is attributed to the noun. On the contrary, the noun does not imply a time because it is not attributed to another. It simply is the subject of the attribution. So we ask whether the man is running, has run, or will run. We don't ask about the man, is he past, present, or future? He's just a man. When we put the noun and the verb together, we get a statement. When we say, the man runs, we're putting the noun and verb together, we get a statement. That statement is either true or false. From this, we can gather a complete definition of a statement. Aristotle writes, not every sentence is a statement, but only such are statements as have in them either truth or falsity. Thus a request is a sentence, but is neither true or false. What Aristotle is saying is that statement falls under the genus of sentence, which maybe we could simply translate as complex expression. So a complex expression is any expression made of simple expressions. A statement is one kind of complex expression. What's its specific difference? The specific difference of a statement is that it signifies something that is either true or false. No other kind of sentence does it. A request is a sentence, it's not a statement. Because a request is not true or false, it's simply asking for something else. Even a question is not a statement, because I don't say about a question, for example, what is man? I don't say whether that question is true or false. True or false doesn't apply. But the statement, man is a rational animal, true and false does apply to that. That is a statement. So, we've got the noun, one part of the statement, the subject, which does not signify with time. We have the verb, the second part of the statement, the predicate. It does signify without time. Put the noun and the verb together, we get the whole statement. It's a sentence, a complex expression, which is either true or false. Since the purpose of logic is to aid the mind in knowing the truth, Aristotle dismisses all the other kinds of sentences here and deals only with statements. Now in this lesson we've discussed the parts and definition of the statement. In our next lesson, we're going to look at how Aristotle divides statements into kinds and how he determines the important relations between the different kinds of statements. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.